Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I know I'm doing great because I'm super excited to bring you this episode today. Now, many of you will be super familiar with the asteroid impact at the end of the Cretaceous period that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. It is probably the world's most famous and well-known extinction event. And while the dinosaurs steal the show in terms of the dynamics of what was going on at that time, the bigger question is how did the ecosystems respond? Specifically, for this podcast at least, how did plants come out on the other side of that giant asteroid impact? And that's where people like my guest today come in. Joining us is Dr. Monica Carballo. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, and her interests focus on how tropical forests changed after the asteroid slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula. To do this, she looks at a lot of fossil evidence. It's really interesting work because it looks at sort of the shape and function of the leaves to understand what was going on with the climate at that time. And you will be really amazed at how much resolution and information they can gather just by looking at the shape and size of different leaf fossils. Most importantly, they have fossils from both before and after the asteroid impact, which allows them to answer some really important questions about how these tropical ecosystems have changed over time. You know, we take for granted that these are old, biodiverse habitat types, but they haven't always been the same as they are today. I don't want to steal any of her thunder, so you know what? Let's just jump right into it. This is an incredible conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Monica Carballo. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Monica Carbajo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. But first, let's tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, thank you very much for having me. And okay, as you said, my name is Monica Carvalho. I'm a botanist and a paleobiologist. And I study the evolution of tropical rainforests using the plant fossil record, especially leaf fossils. So I did an undergraduate in biology at Universidad de Antioquia, which is in Colombia. And I always knew I wanted to study plants. So since I was a very, very young little girl, I had this book in my house that, you know, basically told, you know, I was reading and talked about, you know, these little green packets that leaves had that could turn sunlight into uh, sugars. And I was just fascinated by that. It's like, oh, my God, they make their own food. And I would go as a little girl to my mother's plant. And just like, there are all these uh, aracy, tropical aracy. They're really thick. They have a very thick epidermis. So you can actually just like peel out the skin. <laughs> and I would just like look at them and see these, like what I would think uh, back then were chloroplasts. I would see like some tiny little green packets Obviously, they were not, but to me, it was just fascinating, and that kind of spiked my love for plants. So I did my undergraduate in biology because I wanted to study plants, and then uh, I fell in love with evolution. I wanted to know what was the origin of all this tropical biodiversity, and somehow I got directed towards uh, fossil plants. Uh, Back in that day, uh, there was a big project going on collecting plant fossils in northern Colombia in the Cerrajón Formation, which is a 58 to 60 million year old deposit. And this deposit had what would be the earliest known tropical rainforest. So I got involved with that and I went collecting fossils and it was just so amazing to be able to split open a rock and find a leaf or find a flower. I just fell in love with it. After that, I did a master's in geosciences because I wanted to know a little bit more about fossilization and what could we learn about these fossil deposits. Uh, That was at Penn State University. And then I did my PhD in plant morphology uh, with uh, Dr. Carl Nicholas at Cornell University. Nice. I graduated uh, three years ago. And after that, I joined the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute as a postdoctoral fellow. And I've been studying the 
fossil record of tropical rainforests ever since. Wow. So it's rare that I get someone on the show that they start so steeped in the world of botany and just loving plants from such an early age. And that's a really cool perspective to bring to the table because, you know, realizing it early on sets the stage for so much. And it's so awesome to hear that trajectory kind of go from like, I like plants. I also like the past. So let's try to figure out that out. And then sort of the morphological. I mean, the, the Nicholas lab is very sort of abstract, but also very physical when it comes to plants. And then taking all of that together into the world of paleobotany to try to understand sort of the history of these ecosystems, but also our planet. I mean, that uh, my hat's off to you. That is incredible. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's it's a lot. I mean, I, I, I love plants. Uh, I basically, I always wanted to do a PhD because I wanted to understand how plants worked and how they evolved. So it's it's been fun. Uh, I've been quite privileged to, you know, have great mentors and and be able to study what I what I love. So I think in that context, coming in with more of a traditional like botany, modern day flora kind of background, do you think that really strengthened your dive into the world of like hardcore paleobotany? Because, I mean, it's one thing to be geosciences, understanding sort of the rock, the history, the deposition, that sort of stuff. But to truly understand what these fossils can tell us, you really have to know a lot about, you know, extant plants, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I feel that if you come into paleobotany from the geoscience perspective, you have a very good understanding of the environment, right? Of, you know, depositional environments, uh, depositional settings. And it's a very interesting and it's a very important thing to have. But in order to really understand these ecosystems, how they worked, how they looked like, you do need a very profound understanding of, of plants, of modern plants, how they work, how can you interpret their morphology in terms of what they do. So yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's a very valuable tool, uh, I think, it's to have. Yeah, because I can imagine it's one thing to think of a plant fossil as sort of being this nice, complete, almost scanned image of what that plant once looked like. But most of the time you're dealing with fragments or bits and pieces that are disarticulated. You don't know what goes with what. And oftentimes it's really hard to even find a, a taxonomic affinity, especially the farther back in time you go. That's right. So, I mean, plants, they disarticulate, right? So... When you find fossil plants, you, you can find, you know, isolated leaves or you find their pollen or some flowers for mineralized tree trunks. It's really, really rare to, to actually be able to put these little, these pieces together and reconstruct a whole plant. And, you know, that's, that's something that's uh, really complicated in paleobotany. Uh, it would be wonderful to have the whole organism. We could learn so much from that, you know, the hydraulics. We could under, have a much a better understanding of exactly what is it they were doing back then. So that's why you have to be a little bit of a detective <laughs> and, and interpret these, these isolated fragments. That's one of the reasons I, I kind of focused most on leaves. But even though leaves give us a lot of information, we always have to think that, you know, these are not just isolated things. They're part of a whole organism. And you really have to think about, you know, organismic biology of these plants in order to say anything. I mean, hypothesize anything, because these are always going to be hypotheses. <laughs> yeah, and that's an important thing to, to admit. And it's good when you hear it directly from the scientist's mouth. I mean, we can read all of the scientific reports that we want that kind of make it sound a little bit more certain than a lot of this stuff actually is. I mean, even with modern science, there's there's always a degree of uncertainty with this. So to hear that a lot of this is inference and, and sort of not speculation, but like you said, a hypothesis, you know, you're checking yourself all along the way. You're not trying to claim more than, than what you really can, given the data available. Yes, that's that's absolutely right, and and that's something we we always have to keep in mind because you know it's it's also it's part of the scientific process. Everything that we say are hypotheses, and it's important to look back at what is the evidence these hypotheses are based on. And you know that's that's a way of constantly checking ourselves and checking all the new ideas that are coming out every day. 
Right on. And so in the context of where you've been working in recent years, you know, paleobotany is a deep and vast field and plants more so than literally most other terrestrial organisms have a deep, deep history on this planet. So where do you begin to even pick a time frame to start asking questions and, and just be curious about? Is it something that's just kind of, well, here's the funding, here's what we have, go for it. Or do you kind of come in and go, hmm, I really like the end Cretaceous? Well, um, in my experience, I kind of, I just fell into the Paleocene. And then a natural question was, you know, what happened during the end Cretaceous extinction that led to these Paleocene forests? But it's, it's something that I truly believe that it's easier to think of something interesting. You know, so many interesting things have happened in, in Earth's history and during plant evolution. There's so many interesting questions, uh, you know, from early land plants, how did they look? What was their physiology? You can look at the Permian extinction. You can look at climate change in the fossil record. So there's, there's always something interesting, no matter where you look. I mean, as, as I see it, uh, there's so much to do with botany today, right? Yeah. You, can, you can look at so many different aspects, but then you can just take that same scenario and just pull it back in time. So, you know, it's almost like an infinite universe of, of research. Oh, no. <laughs> now, that's actually really exciting because obviously you're a curious person or else you wouldn't have gone through all of the steps to get to where you are today. And I'm sure that no matter where you could situate yourself on that timeline, like you said, you would find interesting questions and, and ideas to pursue. But you're working in a really interesting time in our history, and especially as it relates to sort of what we see on the landscape today. Because I think, you know, you hear tropical rainforest, you hear flowering plants. I mean, these are really iconic ecosystems and organisms for most people. I mean, even if you don't have an interest in plants, you can recognize the flowering plant and you can go to the tropics and experience all of the amazing diversity. But when you stop to think about like, it wasn't always this way. There's never a point in time in our history you could go be like, oh, that's how it was before. And now we're just going to return it. No, it doesn't work like that. And so, you know, what to you excites you kind of, I guess, in a big way about this transition from the Cretaceous to the Paleocene or Paleogene? Ugh. Paleogene? <laughs> you can use either one. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing that was really hard to wrap my, my, my head around was the fact that late Cretaceous rainforests were different. Being, you know, being a tropical creature as I am, it's really hard to think about anything else in the tropic, I mean, not being dominated by, by flowering plants and not being just this explosion of green. It's, it's mind-blowing. So even when I was looking at the fossils, they looked weird. There were, you know, you definitely recognize that there are flowering plants in there, but the leaves look weird. You cannot really pinpoint to what they are, what their affinity is. It could have, you know, it could be part of a big clade. I mean, you definitely recognize, you know, this could be a Rosalian thing, but you cannot really pinpoint to, to what family they, they could belong it's, it's weird. And then when we started putting the pieces together, you know, thinking about this in a little bit more of an ecological perspective, you know, how were these forests growing? How were they were working? Just realizing that you don't have that vertical complexity that you see today in tropical rainforests that you had probably what were open canopy forests, but it was still rainy. But it wasn't, you know, we see we see rainy uh, rainforests in you know the in, in Olympia today, and there there's a lot of conifers there, but it's still not a tropical scenario. It's not warm all year round. Trying to imagine that, I think it's the most challenging <laughs> thing because there's certainly nothing that's an analog to you know anything that we find today. There, there there's no analog to that. So. It's it became it was it was hard, but at the end it was kind of fun actually thinking. Okay, I mean, if we had a tropical rainforest, what happens if we remove legumes? What happens if we you know remove all this vertical complexity and just put in a bunch of monkey puzzle trees or uh, cowrie pines? What would that look like? How would the ecology of the forest change? So that was that was fun. 
Yeah, especially just, you know, even having that background in modern botany, like you said, that trying to figure out what it looks like even before you start doing the science. But, you know, you you mentioned that you're looking in areas that were tropical at some point, whether they looked the same or not or had the same sort of structure or not is, is a different point we'll get to in a second. But, you know, even from the geological perspective, when you're pulling out these fossils, how do you know you're pulling out fossils from a tropical ecosystem versus like a temperate rainforest type ecosystem? What kind of clues are you looking at? To, to kind of infer what kind of ecosystem this would be before you even start thinking about the, the composition and structure of it all? Well, that's a great question. So that's, that's somewhere in which leaf fossils are actually pretty useful. And that's because uh, leaf fossils, leaves in general, they tell us a lot about climate. You know, water availability is a great thing. And it's, it's one of the primary factors that determines leaf size, the range of leaf size that we can find in a forest. If there's very little water availability, you will just not find any leaves that are large. Everything's going to be really, really small. So in these fossils, when we start finding, you know, pretty large leaves, that's pretty indicative that, you know, it was it was rainy. Uh, There was a lot of water around. Leaf margins are also very useful at telling us, you know, what the temperature was like and that even though that we don't know exactly what the controlling mechanisms for that are, there are several ideas out there. Uh, in general, you know, the, the colder you get, the more leaves with teeth you're going to find. So in these past forests, we were finding very large leaves. Almost all of them had, you know, entire margins. They had drip tips, which is also something that's pretty common in, in tropical rainforests today and kind of follows that, that physiognomy, that's the way leaves look in the tropics. And, you know, we can, we can look at that and we can actually estimate, you know, how much rainfall did we have back then. Also, there's, there's indirect ways of looking at temperature in these areas that have to do with the geological record. So there are some pretty good thermometers, to call them that way, from deep sea sediments that you know, are now known from that same time period and that are calibrated with, uh, with how modern organisms work. So we know that it was fairly warm across the whole Cretaceous and Paleocene. Temperature didn't fluctuate too much. And we see from the leaves that it was rainy both before the extinction and after. Wow. And it's really cool to see how sort of that background you have and then the physical aspects of what structures a plant and those attributes that are shaped by the physical environment and the climate and all that really lends well to this type of work. I mean, I don't think you could really do this without having a strong background in that, but you coming in with it really probably sets you ahead of the game and and allows you to kind of breeze past a lot of the basic questions and kind of start getting into it a little bit deeper. But also it's really cool. And again, this is how science works, but to see all of these different lines of evidence that kind of confirm one another, it's not just, well, I see this type of leaf. I'm going to say it's this. It's no, this matches with this, matches with this. And then even if we look out in the ocean sediments, it's confirming a lot of what we're, we're figuring out here. So you've got a lot of data to support with a lot of uh, confidence that these are really strong hypotheses to, to be working with. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's one of those really cool things about, you know, looking, you can, looking at the fossil record. You can pull independent li- lines of evidence together from the geological record and then from observations that have been made on plants, you know, since uh, over 100 years ago. You know, the correlation between uh, rainfall and temperature and leaf size is something that was actually described in the early 1900s. Hmm. And then paleobotanists, because, you know, this is something, you know, you find fossil leaves, it's really useful to be able to say something about climate. They have really looked through the years into this correlation and tried to, you know, put it in a quantitative sense. So it's actually standing in the shoulders of giants. (laughs) (laughs) That's science. (laughs) Yeah, that's science. (laughs) Uh, that's really exciting. And so let's kind of put this bigger work into context here. Again, you're you're working at this boundary at the end Cretaceous, which, you know, for many, many, many people listening, if you are 
at all familiar with dinosaurs, you know what happened at the end Cretaceous. A giant rock fell out of the sky, obliterated much of life on this planet, and it's super famous, but you obviously know it for the sake of dinosaurs. You get that shot of the T-Rex looking up at the asteroid that's going to wipe out it and all of its relatives. But what you see far less talked about is what happened to life after that? I mean, we know mammals took over, but, you know, none of these organisms could exist without the plant communities. And I feel like, I mean, maybe this is just my biased perspective, having only looked at this from more of a pop science background, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of attention paid to what was going on with the flora of that time period, both before and then right after, uh, you know, sort of looking at how did plants fare after a massive extinction event brought on by an asteroid? No, you're absolutely right. And especially because, you know, the end Cretaceous has become such a huge part of pop culture. We only think of dinosaurs. It's quite funny. We, we actually don't, you know, in general, people don't really realize that around 75% of all life on Earth went extinct. You know, ammonites in the ocean went extinct. You know, a lot of marine reptiles went extinct. And we don't really realize, you know, 75% of species in, in the planet went extinct at that time. From the plant perspective, people don't really talk too much about it. There is very good research on it, especially, you know, in temperate zones, in Patagonia, in New Zealand, in, you know, the Great Plains in the U.S., but it hasn't really kind of stuck to popular culture. And I think one of the reasons is that we don't have, you know, an analog to dinosaurs. We don't have, you know, that big iconic group that just disappeared completely. Mm. Instead, what we see in ecosystems is, is that, you know, extinction was not homogeneous around the earth. It was harsher in some parts than others. And we see that there is more of an ecological change rather than having this big taxonomic group just fade away. Uh, this was first said by Kirk Johnson. Uh, he found in Castle Rock uh, this beautiful flora that you know looks like a rainforest, and it's dated to be just right after the extinction. Hmm. So he was kind of first to show that you know Cretaceous ecosystems were very different before the extinction. What appeared after the extinction was actually something completely new. And that's really powerful uh, if we think about, you know, the evolution of terrestrial ecosystems because it's a complete reset. Like now we're seeing that, you know, this catastrophe, it, it made a complete reset on terrestrial plants and allowed new communities to build in, to evolve. And with those new plant communities, it's not surprising that, you know, we have a complete faunal turnover. Hmm. We have, you know, the, the age of mammals, not just because dinosaurs disappeared, but also because, you know, they built these close relationships with flowering plants. Yeah. When you think about it from that context, again, that plants are setting the foundation for every ecosystem interaction that we really see. And it scales all the way up to the top predators that don't touch plants other than to like hide within them. And so recognizing that, like you said, is very powerful, but then trying to understand it is a completely different thing because, you know, you're working with what the fossil record tells you. And again, from my basic understanding, we have a good grasp on what's going on in less tropical areas. You had mentioned a few habitats there, but it seems to me a little bit more like, especially in areas like South America, around the equator, what happened with tropical forests is a completely different story. And is it because, you know, the fossil record is just much harder to get a grasp on in tropical areas? I mean, what what really kind of limits our understanding to date on on what was going on with tropical ecosystems at that time period? Yeah, what you say is really it's really key. And there hasn't been much of a, you know, continuous uh, tradition or historically paleobotany hasn't been really big in the tropics. And that's primarily because fossils are hard to find. You know, in order to find fossils, we need to see rocks. <laughs> and in the tropics, you know, it's everything's covered with vegetation and it's great. <laughs> uh, there are very deep soils. So in order to find, you know, fresh rock, it's it's really hard. And that's actually one of the reasons why people there was this common misbelief in the past that 
you know, nothing would fossilize in the for in, in tropical rainforests because, you know, everything would just get eaten or rotten. And it's not true. It's just that there's a bias in, in how we find these fossils. And it's really hard. One thing related to that, too, is uh, as biologists, we always had this, this conception, this idea that tropical rainforests, as we know them today, kind of evolved with the rise of angiosperms. So I remember even as a as an undergraduate student, there's there's this idea that you know flowering plants just radiated, they diversified, they took over, and they kind of immediately built these uh, rainforests as we know them today. But there was no evidence on that except for the fact that you know they're really diverse today, and we see in the fossil record that in general they they diversified pretty early. So that's that also one of the kind of key points that this research is, you know, is showing is we have collected, you know, thousands of leaves uh, over the years. You know, it's been 15 years or more uh, collecting plant fossils because they're hard to find. Uh, we go to siltstone mines, we go to coal mines, we look at, you know, at uh, road cuts, although those are always much harder to find. <laughs> In order to build this really large data set and in order to have kind of a something that would be really representative of, of how these forests looked like in the past. And, you know, we were finding things that were unexpected to our kind of like what we thought things were during the late Cretaceous. It's so exciting. And yeah, reading your paper, which was just published in Science, huge congrats to you and your colleagues for taking that up. But also, you know, looking at your methods, I got anxious just reading those going like 15 years and all that work. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I mean, my head is off to you and your colleagues. This is incredible work. And you found some really, really fascinating patterns. But you can also pat yourself on the back that by putting in all of that effort, your resolution is bar none one of the best I've seen in a study like this. So, you know, let's begin there. I mean, just having that resolution, it spans uh, both before and after the Cretaceous extinction event, right? And that's that's a really amazing place to be botanically uh, with the fossil record. Yeah. So what we did was, uh, you know, because it's not easy to find fossil leaves, what we did in general was kind of combine two different things. So we looked at the pollen and the pollen is great because, you know, it's a lot easier to find. It gives us a very high temporal resolution. Mm. So kind of like by stitching together different outcrops, we were able to have a full record of the whole of the Maastrichtian, so starting at 72 million years ago, and the whole of the Paleocene. So it goes all the way over to 57, 56 wow. million years ago. And it's really, really good. The pollen can tell us a lot about you know, past diversity. It can tell us a lot about that proportion of flowering plants versus uh, ferns versus gymnosperms. But it's not really good at telling us about, you know, very definite or high resolution of taxonomic affinity. Mm. And that's where the leaves come into play. You know, the, the leaves, because they represent more of a local environment, because of the way they fossilize, uh, we're able to see, you know, we can maybe identify some, you know, plant families that we know today. We can also infer a lot about that ecology of how, how the forests looked like. So these two different lines of evidence, they complement each other really, really well. And I think that's why, you know, we, we probably wouldn't be able to tell this story if we had looked at these things separately. <laughs> yeah. You know, before we get to the leaf fossils, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about pollen fossils because that's wild. You know, I, I, we're, as we record this, it's spring in the Northern Hemisphere. Everyone is cursing the sheer amount of pollen that's in the, the air right now. But, <laughs> you know, that is a method plants have been using for a very long time. And not all of that pollen ends up uh, fertilizing an ovule, nor does it always end up in your sinuses. So a lot of it ends up in the environment. And to think that you could, A, find fossil pollen is bonkers to me, but also be able to use it to some extent. I mean, like you said, not getting the resolution on taxonomic affinity, but there's enough of a morphological sort of trend with pollen grains to be able to say, okay, we have gymnosperms or maybe even this sort of family. I mean, that, that to me has got to be one of the most abstract forms of paleobotany out there, but also one of the most important. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely one of the most important because, you know, you can find it almost anywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's the, it's the best way, you know, the most complete record of plants on earth. And, um, yeah, what happens is that, you know, plants, they're producing pollen all the time in, you know, the, the, Temperate areas, it's mostly concentrated during the spring. In tropic, mostly, you know, all the time. You know, trees flower at different times. So all this production, you know, pollen, even if it's transported by animals, uh, even if, if plants are animal pollinated, some of it, you know, it rains, falls to the ground, uh, it flies around, and eventually it'll end up, you know, in something like lake deposits or, or these mudstone deposits that we find uh, in the fossil record. And what we do is that we take, you know, pieces of fresh rock, uh, we kind of macerate them, put them through acids to kind of dissolve the whole, you know, all the mineral stuff. And because pollen has for pollenin, this compound is actually pretty resistant and it's still organic. So we're able to separate, you know, that organic phase, which would be the pollen per se, from the mineral side. You can isolate it. And then what we end up is having, you know, an assemblage, you know, a community of different pollen grains and spores that are actually representative of, you know, of the forest uh, in a regional sense. We don't know exactly how much of it represents. I mean, it it's not a local representation. Mm. It's something a lot more regional because pollen travels, especially if it's, you know, it comes from plants that are air pollinated, wind <laughs> pollinated. So, from that, we are able to have a pretty good idea of what those communities looked like based on, you know, pollen morphology. Uh, is it a spore from a fern? Is it something that, you know, is wind pollinated and has more of a conifer-like morphology? Is it something that's an angiosperm? The further you go back in time, it's going to be a lot harder to tease apart some specific groups you know, especially within the angiosperms. I mean, you have triculpate pollen grains, you have monoculpate pollen grains, but as you go further back in time, it's it becomes harder to say, well, are you sure this is a monocod? Are you sure this is, you know, a eudicod? Or is it something, you know, more basal angiosperm? So what we do generally is is group things into these broad taxonomic groups so we can easily differentiate angiosperms, flowering plants from ferns and from gymnosperms. Wow. <laughs> Talk about hours in the lab under a microscope. But then the other side of it is these beautifully preserved parts of plants. So leaves, twigs, sometimes I'm guessing flowers and other, you know, seed producing structures, even if it's, you know, gymnosperms or angiosperms. But, you know, this idea of no analog also kind of complicates things because there's, I'm sure, a ton of convergent evolution over time in terms of just like, again, a leaf has to withstand the wind. It has to capture sunlight. It also has to deal with, you know, evapotranspiration, that sort of stuff. So when you're looking at a leaf fossil, even then, if it looks familiar, there's there's no real guarantee that it necessarily is, which means you're trying to find other lines of evidence, or at least, like you said, trying to pin it in some sort of larger classification that has a, a higher degree of certainty in it, right? Yes, that's right. And it's completely true with, uh, with leaf fossils. There's a lot of convergence in leaves. There are definitely certain traits that we know from looking at modern plants are likely to have evolved once from what we know, you know, from modern plants that doesn't eliminate the idea that it could have evolved separately, independently in another group in the past. So that complicates a lot of the identification. What we usually do, you know, it's, it's a lot of morphological comparison. It's understanding a little bit about leaf development and kind of having, you know, just from morphology saying, well, this could be either A, B, or C. You know, if there is a lot more than that, many different plant families that have this same type of, you know, leaf architecture, it's like, well, okay, we're just going to say we don't know. It could be anything. It could be something that's, you know, common to all these different families. And that means that we can't really pinpoint it down in, you know, in a phylogenetic context to what clade does it belong to. And we're pretty, you know, honest about that. In reality, the number of leaves that we're 
actually able to identify and kind of like to give them a natural affinity, it's it's very, very low. I would say that it's, you know, like maybe 5% of, wow. of the different, you know, leaf morphotypes that we find that we can that we can accurately say, well, you know, I I have pretty solid evidence. I believe that this is, you know, Amalvasi or, or something like that. One thing that helps is when we have, uh, sometimes you find preserved cuticles. Mm. So leaf waxes are also, you know, they're pretty resistant. And depending on the type of fossil you have, sometimes we find that the cuticles and the leaves are still preserved they're kind of just like compressed. They're sandwiched between, you know, inside the rock. We can isolate it again, you know, using acids, using different chemicals, kind of clear them out. And in those cases, we actually have this perfect impression of, you know, what the epidermis looked like. We have stomatomorphology, we have trichomes, and that is very useful when we when we're trying to tease apart, you know, what family does this leaf belong to? Because it's kind of uh, a different line of evidence. It's, it's not morphological, it's more anatomical. Hmm. And it actually, it's very helpful when we want to test our, our hypotheses. Is this, you know, plant family A or plant family B? Well, you know, their trichomes are different. So maybe that's how we can pinpoint down exactly what we're talking about. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. And the the attention to detail, again, really emphasizing that botany background that you need to even start being an effective paleobotanist. You have to be able to recognize this stuff and, and have that knowledge base to be able to start associating it with certain things. But okay, we've established that you've got a deep line of evidence and data to work with here, both in the pollen record and the fossil leaf record. And I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other geological things going on. But the important thing is, is you have these records from both before and after the asteroid impact. And that allows you to ask some really interesting questions about what's going on with these ecosystems, maybe not individual species per se, but the ecosystem in general. And that's really what you all set out with, with this paper that you uh, are lead author on here. So, you know, what well, I guess we'll start with what were some of the big questions you were trying to answer in looking at this, and then we can kind of go into the patterns that you were able to reveal. Um, okay, so historically, you know, we first found this Paleocene, so post-extinction forest in, in the northern part of Colombia. And we found that, you know, it's it's really similar to, to what we see today in the tropics. We were finding, you know, the same plant families that are dominant and diverse in the tropics today. Uh, we're finding, you know, there's a lot of insect herbivory, which means, you know, intense biotic interactions. Uh, it was rainy, it was warm, as we know from, you know, paleoclimatic inferences. And it's okay, you know, basically we're seeing a tropical rainforest as we know it today. It was a little bit less diverse, uh, but it's kind of the same thing. So the natural question was to ask, well, when did they originate? And, you know, how we have a massive uh, planetary event that happened, you know, a few billion years before that. Uh, how were rainforests impacted? How were they affected by the asteroid and that ecological catastrophe that was triggered? So that's when we started, you know, building this nice, massive data set. So students, paleontologists, and, you know, kudos to them. Uh, they have a lot, a lot of patience. They started collecting from 39 different outcrops and cores that had been drilled for oil exploration and whatnot, isolating pollen, looking at it. And at the same time, we also started looking for plant fossils, for megafossils, for leaf fossils in coal mines that we knew were dated from the uh, late Cretaceous, from the Maastrichtian, so right before the impact. In that, I mean, Colombia is a quite privileged country in terms of the fossil record, because from the last 140 million years, Colombia has been pretty much in a tropical position. Hmm. South America hasn't moved much. So it's been just there in the tropics. And with the Andean uplift, what happened is that all these deposits that started forming since about that time, they're just, you know, they, they were uplifted. 
uh, everything's covered in vegetation though, but the rocks are there. <laughs> so we have a very, a fairly good continuous record of what has been going on in the tropics for the past 140 million years. Wow. So we were able to go and say, okay, so let's look for, you know, rocks that are dated you know, this age, just before the extinction, and let's go find fossils there. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, just the quirks of geology in and of itself blows my mind because, yeah, it is this like weird historical privilege of just happenstance of, of what geology does. And here you are at least able in a position to go and look and find and collect and, and collaborate with people that have been able to put this together. But to think about just the sheer amount of time you have a record for is so amazing. And so you've mentioned that post-extinction event following the Cretaceous, you know, you're seeing things that are very reminiscent of what you would see in a tropical rainforest today, which already blows my mind because it just goes to show you how old these ecosystems really are, or at least some semblance of them is. But, you know, how different was it prior to asteroid impact? I mean, there was obviously different selection pressures going on before a giant rock falls out of space and obliterates you know, half the globe overnight kind of thing. Uh, so how different were the pre-extinction event forests of this region? They were very different, and that's something that was surprising to me, again, because coming from a biological background, in my head, you know, flowering plants diversified, and that was it, you know, tropical rainforests are there. And uh, when we started looking at the forest before the impact, first of all, we saw that angiosperms were not the dominant feature, and that's something that we see in the pollen record. So when we look at these pollen assemblages, uh, we see that about 40% of all the different grains that we find are from flowering plants. Another 40% or so are ferns, and then the rest are conifers, uh, mainly monkey puzzle tree family. Right after the impact, what we see is that flowering plant pollen grains become 90% of the whole pollen assemblage. Whoa. So we're looking at two different, you know, equivalent, very comparable samples. And we see that there's definitely a drastic change in the proportion huh. of flowering plants that we see. And that proportion kind of like remains for the rest of the, of the Paleocene, meaning that there is a permanent change in the plant communities. When we were looking at the, at the fossil leaves, the one thing that is really striking in forests after the impact is the abundance, the sheer abundance of legumes. Hmm. There's a lot of them, a lot of legume leaves, a lot of legume pods. There's a big diversity as well. I mean, we have six different legume leaves in the Paleocene, which is pretty high for, you know, a family that had just began to diversify. We have also like 68 different types of legume pods. Wow. And this really tells us something about, you know, what was going on. This is really the, the age of legumes. I'm not going to say, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to botanize this. Uh, the Xenozoic is not the age of mammals. It's the age of legumes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And <laughs> when, we, when we were looking at the forests prior to the impact, there were none. Hmm. I mean, even botanically, evolutionarily, it means legumes may have appeared during the Cretaceous, but they were not a dominant feature. They were not a common feature. And because of the ecological role they have today, we know that ecologically, these forests were, were working a little bit differently. So that was the, that was the main thing. Also, a lot of the, a lot of the families, the plant families that we were able to identify either from leaves or fruiting structures after the impact were also absent before the impact. So those, those were the main kind of like the most striking differences. We later got into looking at kind of more of, you know, ecologically, what could this mean? And we started looking, uh, well, Heather Graham, uh, she led a a paper in which you looked at, you know, the isotopic signature of carbon in these fossil leaves for both before and after the impact. And she saw that the range of delta C13 in both types of forests was also different. Hmm. And this is associated to the forest structure. So whereas in, you know, closed canopy forests, 
there's a lot of soil respiration, there's a lot of leaf respiration going on, and that changes the, uh, the delta C13 signature inside the forest compared to what you see in the upper part of the forest. In open canopy rainforests, you know, we have a lot of air circulation going on. There's not a big difference in the isotopic signature of either the CO2 or the leaves that are up in the canopy and the ones that are, you know, in the understory. That is one line of evidence. The other one was also the variation in the, in the density of, of fine veins in leaves. They also reflect a lot how the forest looks like. And it's something very similar to what I just explained. Uh, in closed canopy forests, you have a very strong light gradient. The amount of light that leaves in the canopy are receiving is very high. The amount of light that leaves are receiving in the understory is very low. And this translates, if you look at a single tree, this translates in that the leaves that are up in the canopy, they're smaller and overall they have a higher density of leaf venation. When you look at the, the leaves that are in the understory, they're a lot larger, they expand a lot more, and therefore the veins are also wider spaced apart and mm. vein density is a lot lower. So that variation we were also able to, to see, to evaluate in the forest before and after the impact. And we also see kind of that same difference that is telling us before canopies were opened and afterwards canopies became closed. Oh my God, this is wild. Just because thinking of all the different lines of evidence that really support each other to have that much kind of congruence in and of itself is is really remarkable. But, you know, I use carbon 13 in my own work, but that's with modern day plants. And to think you could use leaf chemistry or at least infer leaf chemistry from fossils blows my mind. But it's a really good indication of water use efficiency. And that's why I use it. And that's the kind of evidence I see. So to be able to pull that out of the fossil record is just so cool. And to be able to you know say something about the structure of these forests, because again, Plants are rooted into place. They don't have the luxury of moving to more favorable climates within their lifetime. So more than most other organisms, they are at the mercy of physics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the wonderful things of plants, as I see it, is that, <laughs> you know, they're, they're the perfect confluence of, you know, physics and chemistry. They're just standing there. So they have to cope with everything that's going on around them and that's also one of the very cool things that you know looking into the past we can really go back to those kind of first principles of, of how things work of how processes work and and we're able to infer how these plants were living just based on physical principles that is so cool. And so, yeah, you've got all these lines of evidence showing you that the forests were going from more open to more closed after the extinction event. You've got the rise of angiosperms in a very big way. A lot of new families are starting to dominate. I mean, weren't you responsible for like one of the first legume fossil discoveries of that time period as well? I mean, just before we jump into the main part of this question. <laughs> yeah, so... Um Legumes that we find in Colombia, they're overall not the oldest legumes, but we do have the oldest, uh, like, cisalpinoidy mm. uh, legume that, that we have in Colombia. And, yeah, one, one of the cool things is that, you know, for that same time period, there are paleocene fossils. There are paleocene legumes elsewhere. But in the places where you find these paleocene legumes, you only find like one different, <laughs> like one type of leaf or two types of leaves. You don't find the, you know, the diversity that you find in the tropics, which really points to, you know, this is kind of like a spoiler coming up pretty soon. Uh, yeah, the, the diversification, like we're seeing that legumes really diversified uh, in the tropics first. Wow. That is so cool. So, okay, the structure changed, the species composition changed, obviously a giant asteroid impact, you know, especially very close to where it did hit, you know, up in the Yucatan. That's a huge selection event and, and a very intense one in a very short amount of time, but over time as well. So you can kind of understand that, yes, ecosystems would have changed. But, you know, based on the evidence that you've been able to uncover and put together, what were some of the hypotheses as to why we see the shift to more closed canopy, denser forests, more angiosperm dominance, and, and the rise in, you know, families like Fabaceae? 
Yeah, so that's that was the the fun part of the paper. After collecting all the you know thousands and analyzing thousands of data points, thinking about what could have happened, and this this catastrophe is something that I don't think you really you really you cannot really wrap your head around it. You know, after a while, I, I started thinking about it. It's like, oh my god, it was so much bigger than <laughs> and so much catastrophic than I previously thought, than I previously imagined, because it's. Yeah, it's kind of the, the closest that Earth's been to, you know, an apocalypse. And we started thinking, well, well, why? Why would we see these differences? Uh, the first thing that, you know, we started thinking about is, okay, you know, flowering plants, they started diversifying early Cretaceous. And by the end Cretaceous, they were already pretty diverse both, you know, taxonomically and ecologically, we know that there were large trees, there were, you know, herbs. Uh, so there's not really a reason why, you know, flowering plants on their own were not able to make a closed canopy forest. So perhaps there was some sort of disturbance or some limitation that was kind of keeping them at bay. One idea could be that, you know, large dinosaurs just roaming around not only eating, but just like knocking things down as they were walking through. And we started thinking in something analogous that happens today. And that's with, you know, elephants in the African savanna and also with the reintroduction of, you know, like large herbivores in, in Siberia. Uh, we're seeing that, you know, animals actually, they kind of help create their environment. Mm. They knock things down and that favors, you know, the growth of other species, of plant species, of, of herbs, more herbaceous things, more shrubby things. So it could be that. And then, you know, after the extinction, all these large animals were gone. And that kind of maybe it could have allowed flowering plants just to take over and you know, build up these cold, closed canopy rainforests. Another idea is that we have that during the Cretaceous, we still have a lot of conifers around. Nowadays, in the Neotropics, especially uh, the only conifer that you really find in lowland uh, environments is needham mm. and i mean needham is <laughs> kind of camouflage is really good as a, yeah. as a flowering plant so cool uh <laughs> so it could be that you know the, the fact that there were in, in in cretaceous forests we have all these conifers maybe the presence of conifers you know it was high enough that it could have contributed to having a an open canopy and then maybe there could have been selective extinction against conifers regionally in the neotropics. And that's why, you know, they left open this niche space and flowering plants, again, could have taken over. And the last one, which is, I, I find it really interesting, has to do with soil nutrients. And what we see is that during, during the Cretaceous, uh, the Andean mountain belt was not there there was not a lot of, you know, weathering of sediments, you know, bringing up nutrients and minerals into these soils. So these were kind of like old soils that were there. And it could have been that, you know, nutrient content was very low. Then with the catastrophe, you know, you have big tsunami waves bringing in ocean sediments. You have thousands of tons of rock that were vaporized and thrown into the atmosphere that then came down again. You have wildfires going on, so there's ashes everywhere. That could have created some sort of, you know, like a fertilization of the forest, uh, especially considering phosphates, which we know are usually limiting in, in tropical environments due to, you know, continuous rainfall and leaching. So it could have been that there this 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 fertilization, you know, this in this post-apocalyptic scenario where we erased all plants, we just fertilized the soil. <laughs> and then uh flowering plants, we know they grow better than either ferns or conifers under high nutrient conditions. So it could have kind of like helped give them a fast start in growth. And then especially with the you know diversification and increasing abundance of legumes that could have kind of led to a positive feedback of soil nitrification and that in general would have kept on helping the angiosperm dominated flores. 
it's really interesting to think of the patterns that could play into this. And those are really three fascinating hypotheses that you make a point in the paper to say they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, every one of these could have an influence in some way or another, you know, picking your poison is just a matter of like, which one interests you the most? But, you know, some are easier to detect than others. But to think of all of the processes that can really change an ecosystem state, and going back to this idea of no analogs, you know, that's why this idea of like a community and and sort of an ecosystem in general is interesting, because yeah, you kind of have climate dictating what types of ecosystems might evolve, but it just goes to show you that these little perturbations or absences of them can have massive consequences and potentially reshape entire regions of the planet, floristically at least. And then, of course, you know, if the plants are changing, everything else is going to change in tandem. Yes, exactly. And I mean, the forest is a lot more than the sum of its parts. Uh, all these interactions, uh, it really makes you think about, you know, the kind of, not the role, because they're not playing a specific role. They're, they're just there. But, you know, the interactions that plant species, individual plant species or plant families have in a community, it's really, really important. Uh, if you start removing either, either one, I mean, how many do you need to remove until you have a completely different assemblage? Yeah. And, uh, you know, from just a, an ecological perspective, as someone that's also interested in modern day communities and plants, you know, does, does trying to understand extinctions kind of put into context what's happening with our planet today? And just, I mean, the destruction that we can rot and then sort of the hubris of being like, yeah, it's going to be fine. Or we'll always we'll restore it back to what it was like. To me, it's just a constant shift of, of things. But I would really love to get your perspective as someone that has both modern and deep time perspectives on on plant community composition and changes. Well, one of the things that struck me the most was, you know, something that was lost during the during the extinction in the tropics was about 45% of plant diversity. Wow. Uh, it was gone. But it also means that, you know, a little bit more than half remained. A little bit more than half of all the species that were there remained. But we find that these new communities, they're completely different. Even if we had, you know, a little bit more than half of the species. So that really tells us that, you know, extinction really, it changes things. It's not that we're going to have the same forest. It's going to be something different. And it's not just that. It's that it's going to take a really, really long time to recover. So that 45% of diversity that was lost during the extinction, it took about 7 million years to recover. So the levels of diversity that we had before the extinction we required 7 million years to get back to that. A long time. And to think at the rate at which we are destroying forests, especially, I mean, last year there was a spike in deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. I mean, added to everything else that we've been doing, you know, the rate of climate change is another pressure on forests everywhere. It's going really, really fast. It's, it's equivalent to a geologic instant. I mean, what triggered the, the end Cretaceous extinction wasn't the asteroid per se. It was the whole ecological catastrophe that it triggered. You know, for about, you know, 100, 200 years, there was little sunlight. Uh, there was no photosynthesis. All the, you know, food chains were, were kind of shut down completely. It's not equivalent to what's going on today. But still, the rate at which we are perturbing our environment is really, really fast. It's, it's almost analogous to, to a mass extinction. So it's worrisome. <laughs> I find it very, very worrisome to think that, you know, we are taking things down. We are leading species to extinction. We are reducing the area of rainforest. And we are inevitably leading the planet to something it will not, you know, these ecosystems will not come back. Something else will come back and we're not going to be here to see it, probably. 
very important perspectives. And I haven't really actually heard the context of extinction as it relates to the Cretaceous extinction as being, yeah, the, the impact was bad, but everything that followed was really kind of the, the, the nails in the coffin, so to speak, for the ecology as it was at that time. But you make a really good point here. And this idea that there's like functional equivalency or something like that, like, oh, if we lose one species, something will replace it. It's, it's almost as if they're saying like, if you lose a puzzle piece, there's an equally fitted puzzle piece to put in there. And yeah, some species might have a lot of overlap in niche space, but they're never the same. And every little bit that's lost or replaced changes things. We don't quite know, understand, or really have the power to predict how that's going to go. But we know how we can exist on this planet as it exists right now. And to think that, you know, the changes that we can have can take millions of years to recover from. I mean, just in terms of a number on the diversity chart, that's sobering because, you know, the the let nature take its course or it doesn't really matter. People, it's almost like they think, oh, well, within 50 years to 100 years, it'll be better. No, we're talking like hundreds of thousands, if not many millions of years for ecosystems to bounce back from massive disturbances. And, and humans, I mean, that asteroid impact delineated a time in Earth's history, and now human activity is also delineating a time in Earth's history as it relates to biology. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what we learn from the fossil record is that, yeah, ecosystems recover. I think the real question is whether we will recover. <laughs> I mean, will we actually be able to to live without what we already know and what we already have, I, I, I personally don't think so. But yeah, that's that's just my opinion. <laughs> a well-informed and uh, honest opinion at that. But you know, on, on a less darker note, I mean, you obviously have made a huge milestone in your career with this paper, and all of your colleagues. I mean, uh, kudos to everyone that put in the effort and and collaborated on getting this work together. And I think you've set yourself up really nicely. But where do you go? I mean, obviously, you've got so many more questions. I'm sure that were generated from this research, and it's not like you figured out <laughs> the Cretaceous extinction. I mean, this is still just one place on our planet. So where do you want to go? with this. You're a postdoc now, correct? And uh, you've got a whole career ahead of you of really interesting questions to ask. So what, what do you hope to do in the coming years? Oh, gosh, that's, that's the question. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so some, some of the hypotheses that we propose here, we can actually test nice. using, you know, the geologic record. So that's something that we're definitely looking into. I personally, I mean, my, my research has always revolved into studying both living plants and fossil plants, because I don't think that you can fully understand one without the other. My interest from the fossil perspective goes into looking at other Cretaceous, going further back in time, looking at you know early Cretaceous rainforests in the tropics. We have with Fabiani Herrera, we continue to, who's at the Chicago Botanical Garden, He's great at finding fossils. He's just amazing. He's the plant fossil whisperer. Um, we have continued to explore, you know, the sedimentary record in, in Colombia, in Ecuador. And now we're moving into, you know, further back in time. So there's some exciting, very exciting prospects there. From the plant perspective, I mean, I've been always interested in, in hydraulics of leaves. And I actually did my PhD looking at phloem hydraulics. And phloem is something that you don't really find very often in, in fossils. I mean, some permineralized tree trunks do have fossilized phloem, but it's something that really interests me because we don't really know much about that side of plants. Hmm. Uh, what are the controls? How does We know very generally how does phloem work, but there's, there's so much else to be known, the nitty gritty, how does, you know, the architecture of leaves kind of affect the rate of phloem export or the different mechanisms of phloem export. Hmm. So yeah, that, that, those, those are my, my two big uh, ideas. That is fascinating stuff. And uh, I think I speak for everyone listening that we would love to hear more about that. So on that note, if people want to keep track of your research as it comes out or just kind of learn more about the work you've done and are going to do, or same goes for your colleagues as well, where do you recommend they go looking for more information about you and, and continuing work on these sorts of topics? Well, from a fossil perspective, at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, there's a very big lab, in which I'm currently based on. Uh, so it's the Carlos Jaramillo's lab over there. 
So through their website, you can find a lot of information. I also have you know, a personal website I try to keep updated. Uh, it's uh, Paleo Biology Monica Carvalho. Um, maybe you'll find it in Google. <laughs> I'll put up and, links. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you the links. So yeah, it's a very exciting future for you know tropical research and tropical paleobotany. Uh, there's a lot to be found. We've been finding a lot of things. There's a lot of questions, interesting questions to be answered. And, you know, it's kind of an open niche. So anybody who wants to kind of explore and study the, the tropics in the past is more than welcome. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Carvalho, this has been absolutely amazing. I can't congratulate you enough on all of this monumental achievements in terms of just the scientific publishing process, but also the findings that you've had. You've really given us a more complete picture of the history of life on this planet, especially of the sorely understudied areas of the tropics during this time period. So thank you so much for uh, doing this, but also sitting down to talk with us and, and tell us all about it. This has been great. No, well, thank you very much for, for inviting me. This was, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. And you are welcome back at any time. So please uh, keep in touch and, and update us as more and more research comes out of uh, your career. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and uh, happy botanizing both uh, in modern day and in the rock record. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Bye. All right. That wraps up this conversation. That was incredible. I can't believe the amount of work that went into making all of this research possible. I highly recommend you track down some of those resources. And of course, the best place to do that is over in the show notes for this episode at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. I thank Dr. Carballo for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And I can't wait to see what kind of new information her career uncovers moving into the future. It's just amazing to me that we can use fossilized leaves in much the same way as we use modern leaves today. And the kind of resolution and information we can gain from them is mind-blowing. And it's only going to get better as we get more and more technology for analyzing and looking at fossils. But that is it for this episode. I thank you all for listening. Of course, please, please, please consider supporting this podcast. I could not be doing it without my patrons over at patreon.com slash plants. And the best part is, is if you sign up to support us with a small financial donation each month, you're getting great kickbacks, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. So you can keep this botanical and ecological conversation going over at patreon.com slash plants. You can also pick up merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants. It's customizable and full of great vintage botanical prints. And there's always stickers for sale as well over at indefensiveplants.com slash shop. If you can't remember these links, once again, just hit the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. They're all there. And at the very least, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on all of the great conversations I get to have each and every week. But yeah, that is it for me. I thank you all for listening, but until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.